Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Very excited to welcome everyone today. We are deep into the fall, at least the fall as I see it from an admissions perspective, Uh, and early deadlines are literally right around the corner. Uh, The first set are on Monday, October 15th, and then, of course, the huge bulk of the early decision and early action deadlines are on November 1st. So, seniors... You are in the thick of it, and we have a show today that is geared towards helping you with many of the things that you're going to be encountering over the next couple of months. Um, And for those of you who are juniors or younger or parents uh, of those, listen up, because these are things that you're going to need to be thinking about at this time next year. Uh, So for starters, one of the things you're going to have to be doing are sending in your standardized test scores. And if you don't really know much about that, how it works, all of that stuff, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. Um, we're also going, last in last week's show, we talked about completing the FAFSA. And in this week's show, we're going to be talking about completing the other financial aid form, and that is the CSS profile that is um, required at a number of different colleges and universities. But before we talk about those things, we're going to talk about selecting a major on almost every application that you fill out. They're going to ask if you want to select a major. And uh, for many people, this is a cause for much concern. So we're going to talk about it today. And joining me for that conversation is my colleague, who I have not talked to in a while on the show, and I'm very excited to have him back. Um, he happens to be a former MIT and Caltech admissions officer, uh, Zaragoza Guerra. Hi, Zaragoza. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to have you here. I am uh, just full disclosure for our listeners, I'm used to seeing Zaragoza slightly more frequently because he used to live in very close by in Boston, but now he has relocated to Austin, Texas, and it's made it a little bit more difficult. So hopefully Austin is treating you well, um, but you can always come back to Boston if if not. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, all right, so we're talking about selecting a major, and I think the first question that I oh, I get, or the question I get frequently is, um, you know, I'm concerned about selecting a major, and I'm not sure if I'm ready yet, and all of those things. So why don't we start with, what does it actually mean when you select a major on your application? Great question, Beth. I, you know, I think that's going to vary from college to college. You know, as usual, there's, there's no blanket statement here. And, mm-hmm. you know, for some schools, it means they're just trying to get a little context for your history, for your extracurricular experiences, your academic experiences. I'm um, trying to get a sense for, you know, why you did some of the things that you did, perhaps. Uh, for other schools, um, it, it it, it means that they are trying to plan a class uh, within your prospective area of study. So they want to know so that they can compare you to other students who might have some of those same interests, uh, who might be looking at that same prospective major, um, and comparing you to those other students to see which of those students they want to take, which, you know, they might not necessarily have all the room in the world to take every student who is interested in computer science or who might be interested in biology or who might be interested in business. And they need to get a sense for the class, how big the class is going to be, and um, that's why they want to know because they, they need to uh, shape that class. Um, right. So it, it is going to vary from school to school. For some, for some places, it means, hey, you're just giving them, uh, you know, some context for your background because it, it might not necessarily have as big a role in their admissions process. And then with other schools, yeah, it does play a role, and they're trying to shape their class. Right. And I always think about it as if you're, if you're being asked to apply to a specific program uh, or a specific school, 
So as an example, at Penn, you apply to either the nursing school or the engineering school or the college or Wharton. Uh, in that case, you were essentially signaling, I'm going to do something in this area. Um, I, you didn't necessarily need to select a specific major, although it was many people did. They didn't necessarily had to, but we had the context of, okay, well, I know they're applying to nursing. So I know that they're really interested in that. That's probably a bad example, but I know they're applying to engineering, but I don't necessarily need to know today if that's going to ultimately be bioengineering or mechanical engineering or chemical engineering, but I, because I do know that it's going to be engineering. And then at other schools, like you say, it's more just, hey, I might major in political science, but I don't really know. And because you're not applying to a specific Mm -hmm. program, right? It's really, you're just kind of signaling an interest almost more than anything. Yeah. But, you know, for some places, it's not, it's not necessarily a specific major. It's a collection of majors that might be Mm -hmm. within that school. And they might not necessarily uh, keep you to that particular major, but they do want to know, hey, are you interested in this collection of majors that are uh, a part of the school? And, and, and I think that's a good segue into the next question, which is also always really foremost on people's minds and which you touched mm-hmm. on a little bit in your first answer, which is how does it impact your chances of admission when you select a particular major? Again, it will vary uh, between those schools who are, or I should say those universities, colleges and universities who are admitting by school within the university and those schools who are admitting a freshman class. Uh, I worked for two institutions, MIT and Caltech, and, and we admitted by freshman class. So we didn't necessarily pay so much attention to one's choice of major. We kind of mm-hmm. used it as context. If someone told us, hey, I'm interested in engineering, we'd have a little bit uh, a better feel for their particular background. And, and that was just context. We didn't mm-hmm. necessarily say, hey, we're, we have X number of students for engineering, and, and that's what we're going for. That being said... Um, you know, an application is being read by an admission officer. And um, so there could be some indirect, perhaps, um, uh, uh, it, uh, impacts on the admissions process in the sense that if I'm reading 30 applications a night and 29 of them happen to be biology majors, <laughs> and then I get that yep. one student who happens to be an English major, uh, hey, that English major might stand out a little bit more, not necessarily because I think they're a better student, but because it's a little different. And I might be, I, I, I might have had my <laughs> biology majors for the day. So it could have an indirect influence in that respect, um, but probably not as much as uh, the impact it would have for those universities they're admitting by school, where mm-hmm. they are saying, yeah. We're going to compare you um, to other students who are interested in biology or at least other students who are interested in the sciences. And there might be some places where, yeah, it's computer science. We're going to compare you to other computer scientists because we just don't have the the room here. So it can impact um, your options sometimes. Um, And it's just going to depend upon the kind of school you're applying to. Yeah, and and again, I think, too, another thing that I always um, highlight for students is when you select a specific major, you are going to call attention to those areas, as you mentioned, your background, right? So if you want to apply as a biology major, that is going to throw extra scrutiny on your science performance, so the coursework that you've chosen to take and how you did in those courses, and perhaps if you submitted some subject test scores, how you did on those, um, since you know that math will be a really important component of that, you might be looking a little extra closely at math scores. So it can throw extra focus, which can be great and can be not so great. Um, so that's another mm-hmm. piece that I think there. So let's start with the, the e- what I think of as the easy one, which is you know exactly what you want to major in. Is there any reason that you can think of why you would not select that major on your application when you're applying? Honestly, it's very hard. You know, this is a hard one because oftentimes families come to us and and they ask me, you know what, I'm interested in computer science or I'm interested in business. I'm also interested Mm -hmm. in this particular school. I know it's harder (laughs) for a business major to get into that school or computer science to get in that school. Should I declare that as my major? And I oftentimes come back to this. 
listen, if you're interested in computer science, mm-hmm. or you're interested in biology, my guess is that you've done your homework and that you've been fleshing out your extracurricular activities in a way that's going to help inform that decision. In other words, you probably have a lot of experiences in those particular fields or that you've been trying to gain experiences in those particular fields. And if I were to look at your activities list, my guess is that I would have a gut feel that those are the fields you're interested in because Mm -hmm. of that. And so if you were all of a sudden to go in with a resume that screams biology or computer science and all of a sudden tell a college or university, hey, I want to major in philosophy, I might do a double take in an admissions committee right. and think, well, why is this person choosing philosophy when their background screams computer science? It just doesn't make sense. And all the effort that you made to build your resume, to build that love of biology, to build that uh, love of computer science, all of that effort might be wasted in that mm-hmm. decision in the yes. sense that you've got nothing to back up that passion that right. you're declaring um, as your major. And so I, and I, I generally come back to this. It, it's probably important. Yeah, select it, especially if it's something that you want. Yes, because I think there are two pieces there, right? The first is there's nothing more important in this process than being authentic. And the minute you start playing games like, well, that's what I really want, but I'm not going to select it because I think it's going to be harder is when your application gets less compelling, just in the exact example that you just gave. Um, So be authentic. If you're nothing than this, be authentic in your applications. And then the second thing, what good does it do you to get to the school if you can't then major in what you want to major in? The whole point of college is to pursue Mm -hmm. your interests and then ultimately leave and work in that field, ideally, potentially, or maybe you're going to work in something else. But the, the point is, this is what you want to do. You know you want to do it. Why would you want to go somewhere where you couldn't do that? So please be authentic. Please select that major if that's what you really want. Yeah. Let's, let's think about... Yes, exactly. And then what do, you, what do you do slightly more difficult, I think, or a little bit more challenging? You have, let's say, two ideas of things you want to major in. Do you, do you select one of the two? Do you go undecided? Um, and I would say the same thing if you have kind of no idea what you want to major in. Mm-hmm. Um, do you select something for the sake of it? Or do you, what do you think about undecided, I think, is probably my big question here. I always think that it's probably best to be honest in in some way. And and that Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that you go into a process telling an admission officer, hey, you know, I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) Um, And and that's your message. You don't, that doesn't have to be your message. Your message could be, hey, you know what? I I know I love the, the liberal arts, or I know I love your core curriculum, or I know I want to study something that it is that you offer. I just can't decide what yet. Okay? Mm-hmm. That can be a compelling argument. Um, it doesn't have to be, uh, you, you know, pull up, a, throw out the, the white flag and surrender to, uh, you know, complete ignorance as to what you want to do. You can inform them of the things that you do want to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, What's going to be most important in those cases is uh, your set of schools, the set of schools that you're looking at and the set of schools that you're considering, and making sure that those schools will allow you to decide later on. Those schools will allow you to uh, switch majors if you need to, um, because if you don't know, that, that's going to be an important consideration. For instance, there are some schools, you know, Stanford, For instance, you don't have to pick a major until spring of sophomore year. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to do um, engineering at Georgia Tech, you have to know that the end of freshman year. And then there are going to be some schools that are going to tell you, like Carnegie Mellon, for example, hey, yeah, you have to have a general idea. You know, that's the expectation. So if you 
don't have that general idea, maybe that might not necessarily be the school for you, but there might be some other options and some other schools that are going to give you that liberty to make those changes um, as you, you know, become more knowledgeable about a particular topic, a particular subject, a particular course of study. They're going to give you that option to uh, later on in your undergraduate career to say, yeah, that's what I want to do and give you the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important point is your, this piece of what you want to study, the, you, know, you, you need to be paying attention to that, the schools that are embracing the idea that you don't know yet. There are many that will. I know that in the, at Penn, undecided was not at all a bad thing to see because you felt like the student's really going to embrace the distribution requirements that we have and is going to look to explore. But at the same time, I did want to know that they had some areas of academic interest, and I expected to see that articulated in their um, the essay they wrote, the Y Pen essay. So I think the overall advice, though, regardless of whether you're looking at any of the schools we've mentioned today or completely different set of schools, is if you are more undecided than not about what you want to major in, you want to look for schools with lots of options and more flexibility. And you, if you think, well, I really like science, so I'm going to apply to a pharmacy school, that might not be the best bet. If you don't know you want pharmacy, mm-hmm. please don't go to a pharmacy school, because if you don't like it, then you have to switch schools. Versus, If you um, apply to a school that has science and has communications and has English and has all kinds of liberal arts stuff, well, now you have options if you decide that the sciences are not for you. Um, Zaragoza, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Beth. Glad to be here. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to be right back, and we are talking about the CSS profile. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. We are back, and we are talking about the CSS profile. And if you are applying to college right now or you're a parent with a student applying to college right now, this may not have been something you were really thinking about or particularly excited to hear about, but I bet if you are, this is the best news you've heard all day. So I'm excited to welcome Kathy Ruby, my perennial guest, it seems, it feels like sometimes, and I love having her on as a guest, uh, Kathy Ruby, and she is a former financial aid officer uh, from St. Olaf. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Beth. Hi. I always feel like I'm cheating you a little because you actually had a much, you weren't just a financial aid officer at St. Olaf. You had a much bigger <laughs> job there, but that's just kind of how we refer to everyone here. Um, so yes. just to everybody. That's what matters today, right? 
<laughs> yes, but, but let's just say Kathy is kind of a big deal. So, But we don't need to talk about that today because today we're talking about the CSS profile. Uh, last week, in, in the show last week, so if you missed that, you want to go back to the archives and listen to last week's show. We talked about completing the FAFSA. Um, this week we're on to the CSS profile. So let's start with a basic question, which is, what is the CSS profile and why do some schools ask for it since all schools ask for the FAFSA? Okay, good question. So, um, so the CSS profile, and just to clarify, CSS stands for College Scholarship Service, uh, and we're just going to call it the profile, though, just to keep things short. Um, the CSS profile is administered by the College Board. And essentially, it's a separate additional form that's required in addition to the FAFSA by about 200 colleges and universities. They're mostly more selective, mostly private. Uh, There are a couple of large public universities on the list. Um, But essentially, these colleges use the results of the profile to award institutional need-based dollars. And so the reason those colleges do that, and quite frankly, St. Olaf also required the CSS profile. Um, The reason they use that information is because they feel like most of the money they give away is their own, right? And Mm -hmm. they're not really happy with the federal formula that calculates a family's ability to contribute. They want to know more information. They want to do a different calculation of the expected family contribution. So they require this additional information, and they run a different calculation of the expected family contribution called institutional methodology instead of uh, federal methodology. So essentially, it gives them more flexibility in how they award their institutional dollars because it's their money. Got it. They want to award it the way they want to award it. (laughs) Right, which I guess makes sense. And I think you hit on some of the differences, but... um, what are maybe the core differences in terms of there's one form you fill out, that's the FAFSA. What's different about the form that you're doing or what you're doing for the CS uh, profile, CSS profile? Yes. Okay. So the difference already alluded to it a little bit. Um, so it's administered through the college board. So it's available mm-hmm. on the college board website, not the FAFSA website. And to sign in, um, you'll actually use your student's college board username and password, which they should have from getting their SAT test results. Um, or so right, or their PSAT. Uh, just or a quick question. Yes. Quick, quick note. Mm-hmm. What if someone has never taken a PSAT, an, an SAT, an AP, they would just get a new username yeah. and password? They so just it's create one a does username and a password. They would create it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. All right. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Oh, that's okay. Um, And so the CSS profile does ask for more information than the FAFSA does. We'll talk more about that later on. Uh, The CSS profile costs money. So the FAFSA is free, the free application for federal student aid. (laughs) But the CSS profile does charge, uh, I think it's essentially $25 for the first school, and then I think it's $13 for every additional school. Uh, So it's not free. The other difference is that on the FAFSA uh, the parent, when a, in the case of separation or divorce of the student's parents, the student is instructed to only provide information about the parent they lived with the most in the previous 12 months, so in other words, only the custodial parent. And the same instructions are true for the CSS profile, only the custodial parent provides initial information on the application. But some schools will also ask that the non-custodial parent also complete a profile form. And we'll right. talk, we can talk a little bit more about that if people have questions. So. All right. Uh, so then next big question is, how do you get started? We talked about a little bit. You sign in um, to the form using the student's college board sign-on. If you don't have a college board sign-on, you can create one. Um, so what else should people know about, about doing, putting the form together? Yes. So once once you start working on it, you don't have to do it all in one sitting. You can save it and go back and work on it. So uh, so do know that there's flexibility there. The form becomes available on October 1st, just like the FAFSA does. Although this year and last year, we actually noticed that the College Board made it available oh, about a week before October 1st. So there might be a little bit of flexibility there. And in terms of that situation when there's a a custodial parent and then non-custodial parent. The way it works is the custodial parent will complete 
the CSS profile first, and when completing the form, they'll be asked to provide, or the student will be asked to provide an email address and information about the non-custodial parent. And then the college board will actually directly contact the non-custodial parent and ask them to complete a CSS profile for the student. So the two parents never see each other's information. It's sent separately from each parent to the different colleges that require it. Got it. And that's good to know and important, I think, for a lot of families who are in that situation. What kind of information are they asking for in this? Because I think they ask for some different stuff than they ask for on the FAFSA. Yes, they do. And they ask for a lot more stuff. I, I could share some choice descriptions of how parents have described this form because it is very thorough. It will, it will, it will ask for a complete picture of your finances. So you will be asked to report 2017 income and that's the year of income that will be used to calculate the expected family contribution. But you're also asked to report estimates of your 2018 income and your 2019 income. And they don't use those years of income to calculate your contribution, but colleges are reviewing these applications one by one, and they want to be able to see if you are having some changes in your income situation. So do the best job you can in estimating what your future income will be. When you're providing your income, you will have to uh, report it manually. So when you're doing the FAFSA, you can actually pull your 2017 income from the IRS, but with the CSS profile, you have to just enter everything manually. My best advice there is just read the instructions carefully. Uh, try not to read too much into what they're asking. <laughs> and that's, that's mm-hmm. easy to do, but try not to read too much into it. They'll give you line numbers on your tax return and on your W-2. So just try to read the instructions and answer what they're asking for without overthinking why they're asking because <laughs> they know what right. they're doing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. What about um, special circumstances? Um, is there a place to describe those? Because I don't think there is on the FAFSA, correct? No, there's no place on the FAFSA to describe them. Uh, on mm-hmm. the CSS profile, there is a place where you can, I think it's 2,000 characters, maybe more, where you can write about any unique circumstances that your family has. And we encourage families to certainly... Uh, include those special circumstances if you have them. Just give the school a heads up or give the school a heads up that you have those circumstances. But we would still encourage you to write to the colleges individually, to the financial aid offices, to explain what you've got, what your circumstances are, document them, give them more detail than you'll be able to do in that little box. Got it. Okay. So that's really good and helpful. And and what happens after you file the, the profile? So after you have completed the profile, and actually, you know what, Beth? I'm going to go back because I think I didn't finish answering what kind of information is asked for. We talked about oh. income, but assets are also asked for, of course. And on the FAFSA, while they tell you to exclude your retirement and exclude your primary residence, <clears throat> the CSS profile will ask you about those things. And they'll also ask you about a business if you have one. Um, the CSS profile will ask about your retirement accounts, but they don't count them in the formula. Again, it goes back to they want to see your whole financial picture. Right. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to get that in there because it is different from the FAFSA. No, so anyway, actually, after you've complete. Oh, go well, ahead. I, mean, I just I want to because it's a good point. I'd like to I'd like to dig in. We have a, an, a minute or two, and so I think it would be helpful to dig into this a little bit. You say they want to see your complete financial picture. What is it? Why ask to see the retirement savings if they're not going to count that in in the in their calculation? Is it because they want to see if you've managed to put away a ton of money? Are they then? But you have seemingly no income. It's a disconnect. Or I'm just curious. Um, and I may have opened yeah. some a can of worms that we don't have time to talk about. But <laughs> what do you think about? No, that? I think that I think it's fair to say. I mean, they want to see your whole picture, so. They may look at it in an appeal situation, um, Mm -hmm. either just to get a sense of what your total financial strength is. But I will say that we had times at uh, where uh, there are colleges who might actually consider it in your favor if you were appealing. So let's say you're a self-employed person who doesn't have a lot of money in retirement assets, but Mm -hmm. you have 
a lot of money in more liquid assets, whether it's real estate or investments or whatever it might be, because that's how you've been saving for retirement, because you didn't Mm -hmm. have a company-sponsored plan. Um, And so you might be able to appeal to the college to say, please don't consider so much of my liquid assets because I don't really have much in retirement. And then they'll be able to look at the application and the information you provided. So in that situation, it might actually help you. Um, Other than that, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the colleges just want to see your whole picture and your whole financial strength as they're deciding how much they're able to award you. Right. And the fact is that, yeah, those two things tend to go hand in hand. And if you're being authentic right. and honest on your your financial information, as we just talked about being authentic and honest on your application information, then this is really <laughs> yeah. just filling that out. Right. So, OK. Yeah. All right. So back to the question about what happens when the profile is filed. Yes. So, and, and as you're completing the profile, make sure that you're checking each college's website just to make sure that they don't need anything beyond the profile. Um, many schools who require the profile will also ask for copies of your tax returns, and they'll have you upload those either to the college's website or they may use a service called iDoc, which is also run through the college board, where you can submit a packet of <clears throat> documents like your taxes and some other forms they may require, and then they'll distribute them to all the schools that participate in IDOC that are on your student's list. Um, So then once you've um, completed the profile, it will be sent to the colleges electronically. Once you have submitted it, and this is different from the FAFSA, you cannot make changes electronically for the schools that you've already submitted the information to. So if you have a change on the form or you think you answered something incorrectly, you'll have to write to the college directly to tell them that they need to correct that answer. Um, If you add new schools later, you can change the information before you send it to the new schools. But once you've sent to a school, you have to make changes manually. Uh, So the school will review the information. They might ask you for additional documentation or additional clarification on questions that you've answered. They'll be uh, reviewing what you submitted on the FAFSA and the CSS profile just to make sure things look similar. Um, And then eventually, once the student has been accepted, then the school will provide you with notification of your student's need-based aid eligibility. All right. Well, then that seems pretty straightforward. And uh, like I said, if you're listening to this and thinking, well, I'm, I'm also really concerned about filling out the FAFSA, well, all you have to do is go to our archives and listen to last week's show. And there's a whole segment on completing the FAFSA in that show. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it as always. You're welcome. Have a great day. All right, you too. Uh, And to our listeners, don't go away. In our next segment, we are going to be talking about submitting test scores. uh, And there's some good information there that I don't want you to miss. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back, and we are talking about submitting standardized test scores, uh, an important component of your college applications. Uh, And with me to talk through this is my colleague, who also happens to be a former University of Southern California admissions officer and a former guidance counselor. So she's been on both sides of this, um, Emily Toffelmeyer. Hi, Emily. Hey, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you, and thanks for joining today. Um, This is the time of the year where there are a lot of things, a lot of balls that people are keeping in motion, and I do find that sometimes this step where you actually submit test scores to the schools that you're applying to can fall through the cracks. So we wanted to do this segment to sort of remind people that this is an important thing and that now is the time to be doing it if you haven't already. Um, So my first thing that I wanted to talk about today was just what's the difference between, there's a section on the application that asks you to list your scores. What is the difference between just listing your scores on your application and actually sending official scores? Sure. So entering scores into that section of the application, it's just, it's unofficial. It's just self-reporting kind of an easy spot for the admission reviewer to see all of your scores laid out together. So I do think it's convenient. It's nice to plug those in if you have the scores, but you have to understand that for most colleges, that's not an official score report. You're still going to need to order the scores from the ACT or SAT, have those officially sent if you have schools that do require the official scores, which is still most schools. Um, But this is a nice centralized way for you to show all of the scores to the admission reader. So it makes their job a little bit easier. Right. Um, And then I do think it is important to note, right, that you don't have to fill that section out. And there might be reasons that you wouldn't. But um, one bonus to filling it out, at least at some of the schools, um, is that they might actually release your application to be read right after the deadline, even if your official scores haven't come in, if there are some scores. That was the thing that um, held school held applications um, if they were deemed incomplete before they would be released to have you read it. One of the things would be that there weren't um, scores. Uh, if there, you know, if the student had some type of scores in the application listed, then at least you could read it. You would still need the official scores um, before the student could actually be admitted. But that was one way to um, make sure that that was in the early pile of applications that was released. Um, but they still were never released before the deadline. So just with this, you know, it doesn't get you any extra points and the application doesn't get read any earlier than the deadline just because you send in your application with your scores on it. All right. Anyway, yeah. I really so you just make a good point that you don't have to list your scores there if you don't want to. And I think that question usually comes up when a student isn't happy with their scores as they're submitting mm-hmm. their application. Um, So maybe you're clicking submit for an early October 15th or November 1st deadline, but you know that you're still going to be waiting, for example, for your October SAT scores. You want to see how you do. You're a little nervous about putting your existing score on the application. That's okay. Just leave it blank. Plan to send the official score reports when they're available. Hopefully you've already ordered them when you registered for the test. So it's okay if you leave it blank. There's always another part of the application system where the reviewer can look at those scores later on when the official version rolls in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and actually, going back to the whole question or continuing with this theme of schools requiring official scores, uh, and there are there is a little bit of a movement, I think, afoot to maybe not require them until... Um, the student has been accepted and has said, okay, I am going here. And then they would require the official scores in order to complete the file. But um, what's your sense about uh, are, are all schools requiring official scores? And, you know, what do, what do we know about that at this point? Well, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for not requiring official scores. Mm-hmm. I think anything colleges can do to make this process a little less expensive for families mm-hmm. is great. And I do think you're right that more and more colleges are doing this, are saying that you don't have to send us the official score reports when you're applying. Um, And it's a big variety of schools. So you've got your public schools, which I think are always pretty in tune to trying to save people money. So places like Georgia Tech, South Carolina, Iowa State, but then also a lot of your very selective private schools like Duke, Columbia, your liberal arts colleges like Amherst and Williams. So 
the big variety out there that just give you the option to simply self-report, which can mean entering it into the application. Or for some of you, you might attend school in a district that actually prints your SAT scores or ACT scores on your transcript. They'll use that too, kind of saving you some money from having to submit the officials. Right, exactly. And that is the that is the great thing, is just that it does save you money. But know that you do need to be honest because eventually they are going to require those official scores to confirm what you reported if you are accepted and you decide to attend. So just something to keep in mind. Big, big question. When should you send the scores and what happens if you if they arrive before the application arrives? I get these questions all the time. Well, I think if you want to be really thrifty, you just go ahead and request the score report to be sent when you're signing up for the test. So both ACT and SAT let you send four free score reports to schools when you sign up. SAT even gives you a nine-day period after the test for you to take advantage of those free reports if you hadn't used them before. So if you walk out of the test feeling like you killed it, then great. You can go order those score reports for free. Um, otherwise, I do think go ahead and get those sent. If you have the scores ready, you're happy with what you have, even if you haven't submitted your applications, you haven't finished your essay, go ahead and have the scores sent. So it's one less thing on your plate. What will happen to that score is it's going to kind of float around um, the, <laughs> the server of the university and their data and wait for it to be matched with your application once that rolls in. That usually is seamless. If for some reason there's a tech issue and your SAT score isn't matched with your application, you're going to get a notification from the university that you're missing something. So don't be afraid to just go ahead and send that out there, even if the application isn't quite ready. Yeah, I mean, it is so common for different pieces to come in at different times. Um, I had a family ask me actually earlier this week, should my son submit his application or should he wait until the school has submitted their pieces? And um, no waiting. If you're ready to submit, um, you know, press submit. Uh, The key is being ready to submit. So there shouldn't be a race to submit early because you think unless it's a rolling admission school where they're deciding as the applications come in, there's really no benefit to you getting your application in on September 1st if the deadline isn't until October 15th or November 1st or even December or January 1st, um, you don't get extra points. Um, But you might not have as good an application as if you had waited and maybe done one or two more drafts of your main essay or proof checked or, or, you know, proofread your application or all those little things that you can do if you give yourself a little extra time. But yeah, don't wait um, for sure. Um, I think the other thing, that I do want to mention, it is a really great option to have the four free score reports. I do think you have to be thoughtful about this, though, because, um, you know, you it, there are things that you control about this process and things that you don't. So one thing to think about is if you use the free score reports, it's great. It's free. You know they're going to the schools. Um, but you might ultimately want to see what the scores are before you decide which ones you want to send, especially if you're going to take the test more than once. So if you're really just sitting to take the test for the first time and it's October of your senior year and this is it, you're not really planning to take it again, 100% I think for those free score reports. And if you're feeling like you really prepped well and you know, you're, you're feeling confident that, that this is probably going to be a good day for you, Again, I don't think it's a negative to use the four free score reports, but there is an element of control that you give up when you do that. And so that's something else that you might want to consider, that you might want to hold off on the free reports until you can see the scores, see how they turn out. And then, yes, you are going to have to pay um, to send them at that point. And so you just have to make the you have to make a decision in your own head if it's worth the extra money. Um, to, to have that little bit of control? Uh, I don't know. I can't really answer that for every family and, um, and, or every student, but I just want to throw that out there as one other thing that you might want to have in your head. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right for seniors who maybe you've already taken it before. This is a last chance effort, but if you're a junior right now who's taking it for the first time, yeah, no need to send those scores. You might be retaking it. You might be walking in cold with very little prep just to get a baseline idea of how you're going to perform. So in those cases, yeah, I, w- I would probably hold off. Yes, right. So it's like everything in admissions, right? It depends. There are going to be times when it's really <laughs> great to use those free score reports and times where maybe it's 
less it's not as good of an idea. Um, and actually, this you, this I think leads right into my next question or thing that I'd like for us to talk about, which is, can I choose which scores to send to the colleges? So I've taken the SAT twice, or I've taken the ACT three times, or I took four subject tests and got two great scores. So do you get to choose which scores you want to send, and how does that work? Well, not surprisingly, Beth, it depends. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so some Favorite schools word. practice what's called score choice. So score choice is a term really more used by the SAT, where they allow you, as you're ordering a score report, to indicate which test dates you would like to send to particular colleges. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that even though score choice exists, not every college wants you to use it. So Georgetown is a perfect example of that. They, they, they love their tests, and they want to see every single test you took, every SAT, every SAT subject exam. If you took the ACT, they want to see that. So there are certain schools where even though score choice might appeal to you because maybe you had one bad testing day, they don't care. They want to see all of your schools. Um, other schools, they will allow you to pick and choose particular days, but not particular sections within those days. Right, mm-hmm. So you can't just pick just your favorite math and just your favorite writing or reading and send those to the college. You're just going to pick by the test dates. And ACT also lets you do this. It's really easy to just select one test date on the ACT website, but you have to keep in mind that there are a lot of schools out there, especially highly selective ones, that say, hey, we really want you to send all of your sittings. Right. And then making things trickier is that when score choice was first announced, we're going back a ways now. Um, there were a lot of schools that were really not happy about it because they felt that the college board, the namely, and when we talk about the college board, we're talking about the SAT and the subject tests. Previous to that, they had they just sent everything, and so they felt that the college board had made a decision without consulting the colleges, who are theoretically the ones who most want the scores, um, and so they weren't too happy about it, and so like you say, many of them also happen to be highly selective. And so the college board put in a little thing that would pop up when you attempted to only send certain test dates to a school that had said, hey, we want to see everything. Um, There was never anything indicated on the college's side. So you could ignore that little pop-up and just send the test you wanted to. And theoretically, the college wouldn't know about it. But Um, I think one important thing to note is that, to the best of my knowledge, the College Board does not keep those updated. So their pen is a good example, and I don't know what happens when you go onto a College Board and you try to send scores to pen, but they used to say, we want to see everything, and then they have since said, send us what you want to send us. But um, it may very well be that that thing still pops up, and that's simply because the College Board is not keeping it updated, not because that secretly pens actual desire to still do that. So all of this to say, if you, you need to look at all the schools on your list that you're applying to and you need to look at their policies and you need to make sure that you are adhering to their policies. So if three of the schools on your list want to see all your scores, you should be sending all your scores to the scre- those three schools on your list. And if you're allowed to pick and choose for the others, then awesome. Then you pick and choose the ones you want to send to the others. Um, but I would not rely upon a pop-up on the College Board site or another site to tell you what that school's policy is. You need to go directly to that school's policy because, you know, it's just like anything, right? If I... I don't go to the source. I go on kind of rumor or what I saw in a different area. Um, it's not much of a defense if I am caught doing the wrong thing, right? Well, I didn't know. Well, you didn't actually go to our website and confirm it. Well, no, I, it doesn't really hold too much water. So you have to, you you kind of have to do that research yourself, um, I would say. Um, and and actually, this begs a, uh, another question question or something else that I want to mention, which is, um, what does it mean? Why would you, what would be the benefit of sending more than one test date um, or really of sending all the scores? Um, and maybe we could talk just briefly about what it means when a school kind of gives you your best composite score and how that works. Sure. So 
when you send multiple settings to a school, what a lot of them will do is super score, which is, I, I think, a term that a lot of people going through this process have started to hear. It's something I would say more commonly practiced with the SAT. And uh, what happens basically is let's take the best section from different days. So let's take your best reading. Let's take your best math. Even if those happen on two different days, let's combine them to give you the best mm-hmm. score possible or the super score. So even if there was one day when you did worse on a certain section, if you improved in the next sitting, then great. You should send both of those scores so that we can see that improvement. We can give you this mega score. Um, so don't feel, don't feel bad if you're sending one test that has a lower section. The school's really only going to pay attention to the higher section. They're not going to punish you for having one bad day and then mm-hmm. one better day. Um, for right. the ACT, I'd say it's a shorter list of schools that super score. I know with USC, we super scored the SAT, not the ACT. But I'll say from my personal experience, I did take the time to look at each section of the ACT on the different sitting dates, and I did make a note. If you were very consistent in a subject area related to your major, maybe you were weaker in a certain subject area because of maybe learning English as a second language, that's something I would make a note of and I would want future reviewers to know. So to me, sending multiple test scores in the situation with USC, it, it usually benefited the students. Yep, yep, I would agree. Really quickly, what about the student who is taking a test in the next few months or taking the test while they're submitting their applications? How, do they, how can they let a college know that there will be more scores coming, theoretically? So there is a spot for that on the applications. Um, I believe in the same area where you would self-report the scores you've earned. You can also self-report that you have some planned sittings coming up. And that just is a signal to the university that, okay, we're going to give maybe a first review of this person based on an old test score, or maybe we're going to set them aside until we get the official test score, and then we'll give them either the new review or the re-review with the the new score that came in. Um, Mm -hmm. And what we did at USC, which I know is different from what you did at Penn, so we can contrast and compare uh, the approach to updated scores, was that students, of course, needed to have the official report sent. But at USC, I was fine with students emailing me, hey, I, I took that October test date. I got my online score back. Here's a screenshot. I improved by 80 points. I wanted you to know officials are on their way, but wanted to let you know in advance. And I would make a note of that. I would add it to the file and wait for those official score reports. But for me, it was more of a memory jogger to re-review that student in the context of the new scores. Um, mm-hmm. So I appreciated the email, but I know that is probably not the case at a lot of universities where email can be overwhelming. Yeah, I would just say that um, it, it isn't necessarily a bad thing to necessarily let your admissions officer know, but also know that so long as you've sent those scores, they should be updated. Um, thanks so much, Emily, for being here. Thanks for all my guests today. Next week, I'm back and hosting. We're talking about trends in early decision that we're seeing um, applying with a fast or a priority application. And we're also going to be doing a college finance Q&A. Um, lots of great stuff in our archives and on our blog. And don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.